0: Does anyone have any questions and uh, anything that's come up for you since we were talking an hour and a half ago? Mm-hmm. No? Okay. <laughs> yes?
1: Uh, how to use my in such a competitive society and during your
0: such I'm having a little trouble under- hearing you. It's uh, I mean, how do you use mindfulness uh, in
1: such a, in the competition of the society?
0: How do you use mindfulness in the conditions of...
1: Competition.
0: In the competition. Daily life. Uh, conditions and competition, both of daily life, I think. But your mindfulness is primarily—it's it, primarily mindfulness of yourself and and what is happening with you. But it, it's not exclusively that. You're also observing others, and so uh, and and you're seeing yourself in others and seeing others in yourself. If, you, if you're practicing a mindfulness, so. The, the form that practicing mindfulness in your life takes, uh, and is, this is very well described in uh, the uh, Satipatthana Sutra, the uh, uh, four applications of mindfulness, as it's called, where you're observing what's happening with your body moment by moment, uh, both what you're doing uh, and uh, what you're experiencing through the senses. And, then, uh, and that's the first ampl- application of mindfulness is mindfulness of the body. And then the second is mindfulness of the feelings, which means uh, not sensations and emotions, but it means pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Because every thought and every uh, sensory experience is associated with one of these three feelings. It's either pleasant, unpleasant, or it's neutral. Uh, And you'll see, of course, that uh, the experiences of the body, in particular, are associated with those feelings, but every sensory experience has downstream to it some kind of mental experience that arises in association with it. Uh, You see something, you recognize it, you have associations. And the seeing in itself may be neutral, but the associations may be pleasant or unpleasant. You know, and every sensory experience has this downstream mental quality of pleasant or unpleasant. So uh, in applying mindfulness in your life, first to your body, then to your feelings, and then you notice beyond that is that there, there is always some mental state or another. And this mental state is not constant, although it is relatively constant compared to the transiency of of actions and sensations and and feelings, Uh, it's longer lasting than that. But mental state is constantly shifting, we're shifting through states of uh, desire, uh, of confusion, of aversion, of joy, of unhappiness, of mental clarity. Uh, there's the, the, a lot of what we call emotions as really mental states and we see that those are related to uh, in, in a two-way manner with our feelings uh, so that bodily experiences cause certain feelings to arise and those feelings in turn condition our minds so that we have certain mental states and then the mental states that we're in in turn condition the kinds of things we experience and the kinds of uh, reactions of pleasantness or unpleasant that arise in association with that. And so the mental states is the third application of mindfulness. The fourth is the mindfulness of uh, the reality that you're experiencing moment by moment, and I believe you know the word for that is is dharma or dharma, uh, and that this, the moment-to-moment mental reality that you experience is something that's actually generated by your mind as a part of this composite whole of bodily experience, feelings, and mental states, and it both conditions them and is conditioned by them. So practicing mindfulness in your daily life is really what this sutra, the Four Applications of Mindfulness, is about. It's about practicing this awareness of uh, what am I doing, and why am I doing it and uh, what are what are the motivations that drive it and the mental states that create it? What is this reality that i 'm experiencing, and how is this reality con- conditioned by my mind you know and so that 's the practice of mindfulness and the interesting thing about this sutra it repeats over and over again, I counted it once I think it was twenty two times but it 's almost every, every single description of an application of mindfulness is followed by the statement that uh, he sees this in him uh, internally and externally and both internally and externally and this is that other part of it that you know you see these things in yourself but then in the practice of mindfulness you can't help but see them in others as well and seeing them both internally and externally has this advantage that what you see when you see the same thing in another you can sometimes see it with a degree of clarity that you can't see when you're looking at yourself you know that right and so when you see it in someone else and then you bring that understanding back then you understand yourself better you see more clearly what's happening in you and the other way around too that becoming familiar with the process that you are based on this and then you see what other people are doing comes this understanding. You see yourself in them. You see that they are just another manifestation of exactly the same processes that you have come to see and understand yourself. And so, by, you know, as I say, uh, the Buddha in the sutra over and over again says, you see it internally and you see it externally and you see it both internally and externally. And so in your <coughs> daily life, in your da- when you practice mindful awareness, you're applying it to yourself, and then you're applying the same understanding, enhancing the same understanding as well as applying it to other people. So it doesn't mean, in all of the different conditions of daily life, including competition, I th- yeah, I'm think i not sure if I heard you correctly, if that was one of the words you used or not. Was it, did, was it competition? Or? It was, okay. So that's just one of the conditions. But in all of our sorts of interactions with other people, you know, people do things that... Uh, Offend us in one way or another, or we struggle with each other, we compete, or uh, I'm right, you're wrong, all of these different things. But as understanding grows through mindfulness, we are seeing that uh, the same processes are taking place in all of us, and we see that they have the same roots. And uh, so that's that's how you practice mindfulness in in daily life. You have a lapse. In mindfulness, anytime that you forget to observe with clarity, and your mind attaches to the perceived reality as being something that it's absolutely the way it is—that uh, uh, this person I'm interacting with is a bad person—then you know you, you've lost mindfulness when you have that kind of perception. Uh, when you become trapped in. it. But whereas when you when you are practicing mindfulness, you see that whatever the person is doing, uh, whether it by various standards is judged good or bad, wholesome or unwholesome, but when you can recognize in it that it is a manifestation of exactly those same processes that constitute you, and that in fact constitute each of us as a sentient being functioning in the world, then that's mindfulness. Is that answering your question? Or did I miss the mark? He
2: was asking about a competitive society.
0: A competitive society?
2: About practicing mindfulness in such a competitive society. So it wasn't so much about competition, it was about
0: competitiveness. Competitiveness. Right. Well, certainly, in in, in our society, you see, competition... Competitiveness is not inherently a good or a bad thing, it's, you know, it, it's, it just is what it is. It's, competitiveness is, is basically, basically a striving on the basis of comparison, you know, uh, and which can lead to good things, and does lead to good things, but it also can lead to bad things in a competitive society uh, which this is the the problem in our society is that uh, a lot of our competitiveness is rooted in just outright greed desire uh, or aversion, hatred, fear. That's the problem. It's not the competitiveness itself. To function in a competitive society uh, you may find yourself in many situations where you are fulfilling the role of a competitor. And that's fine. That's not inherently a problem. But where mindfulness is extremely important is that you function in the role of a compar- competitor in a wholesome way and that you not be drawn into competition that's of the sort that is rooted in just. I- I- desire and aversion in in these unwholesome roots, and that you're able to turn away from that. I know the kind of practical problems that everyone encounters is uh, that, for example, uh, you're competing with someone And the arena of your competition is one that you or your family depend upon for your livelihood. And there's many other examples that we could point to, but this is probably the the most common one, that uh, you, uh, you hold a particular position in an organization and somebody comes along and they want to take that away from you. And then how do you deal with that, especially if, driven by their desire, uh, they're quite willing to engage in uh, uh, unscrupulous activities in order to achieve their goal. And how do you deal with that situation? And that, that is a tremendous challenge. Now, as, as a person who has some degree of wisdom and understanding, then uh, two things. one. The primary thing is you have to recognize that whatever the arena of the competition, it's not worth sacrificing your own integrity. You know, and that's, uh, you have to, that's the recognition that as much value as we may place on something uh, and as willing as we may be to exert Effort and energy in this ar- arena of competition—that uh, that we really need to maintain uh, certain moral and ethical standards for ourselves that are, are based in the degree of understanding that we have, and that and and that the potential loss of some sort uh, is not uh, is not worth, and does is, is not justify sacrificing those standards and and you try to live up to that and I'll follow that with with the warning that if you fail it doesn't matter but you try to do better next time the idea is to is the process of perfecting yourself in this way not demanding that you meet perfection and if you succumb you succumb but as much as possible in a competitive situation you want to maintain your morality, your ethics, your integrity, and you would like to be sufficiently free of attachment and sufficiently trusting of the, uh, how could we put it, trusting of the laws of karma that if you, if you take the high road that uh, there may be a temporary defeat, but it will only lead to the opportunity to, for something better in the future. So, so that's the one side of it. The other side of the competition, of, of dealing with competitiveness, is as an opportunity for uh, developing compassion, love, and understanding in yourself, of not falling into the trap of condemning in your mind and judging the person that you're competing with because perhaps the standards of they're, they're, they're by which they're competing are not... Uh, the same as yours. Rather than condemnation and aversion and, and hatred, that try to come from a place of uh, loving kindness, understanding, compassion. Uh, compassion because the, the, for exactly the same reason that you want to maintain a wholesomeness in your approach to the situation, that the other person's failure to do so is going to bring consequences upon them which they don't foresee. Right? So, so there's a lot of room for compassion in that. Practicing skillful needs. I mean ideally, in, in that sort of uh, difficult competitive situation, uh, you would somehow have the skills and abilities that you might even bring to this person an understanding that would change their approach, perhaps open the way to finding some other solution to the competition, some other resolution, or ultimately uh, what it what it could mean the the ultimate and skillful means which would require. A high degree of non-attachment and uh, a uh, tremendous degree of compassion and understanding would be to, at some point, recognizing that the only result of further struggle would be more harm done to either yourself or other people would be to surrender whatever it is is the object of the competition.
2: Do you find um, when somebody competes with you, like in this society or whatever society, do you find that like kind of a sign of fear fear from the other person to you? Of course,
0: yes, it is. It's a sign. It's coming from some mixture of uh, desire and aversion. And part of aversion is fear. I mean, why do people strive for the things that they strive for? Why do they think they need them so badly? What is it they're afraid of? they're, they're afraid of the possibility of their future suffering, they're afraid of poverty for themselves, they're afraid of not having what they need, and so it's very much coming from a place of fear on the part of that person, whether they recognize it or not. These, uh, these compelling mental states that we label so simply as desire and aversion, uh, and those are good labels, they, uh, they, they're actually very functional. But when you, as you look into them more deeply, you find that they expand into all of these various dimensions and that uh, all of these different kinds of emotions that compel people uh, in their behaviors uh, do actually quite neatly fall into, uh, in, into one or the other of these categories. And fear is a part of aversion. And fear is, uh, people don't realize it sometimes, uh, that greed, they see the greed coming from the desire part, but don't recognize that the greed also comes from insecurity, which comes from fear, which comes from the aversion for some imagined potential suffering that they might experience in the future.
2: How how destructive do you find ego in
0: in a person? Well, you know, when when we say the word ego, uh, not everyone is necessarily understanding exactly the same thing by it. But uh, the problem is not ego per se. Ego can be unhealthy or it can be healthy, but the problem is the attachment to what we are calling the ego. And once again, it will come down to exactly the same thing. So we say, okay, uh, is because of that person's ego that uh, they want this so badly and that they're willing to do anything that they can for it. But it is still a combination of pleasure-seeking and fear and aversion that is uh, is driving what we're calling the ego. The ego is this... Identification of ourselves as an entity separate from everything else. The ego is it, uh, it, it's a word that was uh, coined, uh, I guess, mm-hmm. a little over 100 years ago by Freud. If I'm not mistaken, I think Freud actually uh, is the person who, who invented this word because he needed some word to describe this thing that we're talking about, that the, this mind-created sense of, of I-ness, I, me, and, and, and mine, this identification by which we uh, conceptually separate uh, our self from everything else. And that is that uh, the ego is, is sort of like a mental function, a me- mental process, uh, and what makes up the ego is constantly changing. But that ego can be Healthy or unhealthy, but when we attach to the ego as a real thing—that this, you know—that uh, when we, in our minds, make our sense of self to be really real in an ultimate sense, then we are compelled to compete, and we are compelled to—we uh, make this distinction that that the importance of I is such that the uh, good and well-being of what is not I, what is other, can be sacrificed to meet the needs of I, of the ego. And so when we become attached to this idea of ego, it leads by natural, logical progression to certain conclusions, that that anything that you can... Uh, grasp onto and hold onto that will enhance this self is a good thing to do. And anything that you can do to protect or prevent harm or loss or suffering to this self, it's, it's completely logical. Once you, once you firmly grasp onto this idea of self as an ultimate reality, you are logically condemned to have a mind that is going to be motivated through desire and aversion. There is no way out of it. It's this—it's the simple logic of the presumption of, of, of me as being separate. And that is a very fundamental underlying problem. But you see, the ego itself isn't the problem. It's the attachment. An awakened being still can distinguish if their body and their mind uh, that their their uh, their mind as a as a process and, and their body as a functional aggregation of elements in the world uh, has certain unique needs and, and it will uh, decompose and dissolve if those needs aren't met, you know. And an awakened being isn't a being that's incapable of taking care of themselves. They certainly can't and of recognizing what their needs are, but so in in that sense there is this mental function of ego of being able to discern a purely mentally generated boundary in functional terms and to take appropriate actions to to respect the contents of that boundary but that's quite different than the belief in an attachment and the essential being captivated by this sense of self, which will automatically lead to not only to these unwholesome states of desire and aversion, but it also leads inevitably to suffering. you know that when a, a, a mind that attaches to the idea of ego as an ultimate reality is going to dwell constantly in a state of dissatisfaction, threat, uh, loss either real or imagined it's just th- there is no other way uh, so so the ego itself just purely as a function of the mind something the mind does like perceiving a certain wavelength of light as red that's a function of, of uh, the brain and, and the mind you know the ego as a function of mind that can discern that this body and this mind has its needs is is not is is, is, is not a bad thing But the attachment to it and the misunderstanding, the ignorant belief that it's an ultimate reality is the problem. And that's the root of the competition, too. So we live in a competitive society. uh, We have to, I, I think the best way to regard it is the competitive society gives us a profoundly effective opportunity to zero in on these truths and go beyond an intellectual understanding to them to a, a, a full realization of them and an awakening. But the problems of living in the world are not, you know, I mean, one one option is to try to withdraw from the world. But even that, you still, you can succeed in many different ways. And of course this was the advice of the, the Buddha to, uh, the bhikkhus is to give up all of the things of the world and simplify your life as possible but the point was not that by doing this that you were going to uh, in this way escape the fundamental uh, issue all it did is simplify the circumstances and uh, whereas on the one hand simplifying the circumstances may make it easier to do the practice and to penetrate to the realization which is ultimately liberating. There is another side to this, and that is that living in the world, if you can keep from being overwhelmed, living in the world gives you an even more powerful opportunity to do the same thing. I had a conversation with a Tibetan monk, Geshe Dorje, uh, a number of years ago uh, about this, you know, whether it's better to, whether the idea of uh, becoming uh, a, a monastic and withdrawing from the world is better or being a, a, a layperson uh, working in the world. And his response is he felt that actually if you can avoid being overwhelmed, the life of a layperson is actually a far more powerful vehicle than the life of a monastic for uh, uh, for penetrating through these particular problems and challenges. So, you know, th- it has its positive side, and unless you've already made the decision to become a monastic, then dwell on the positive side of the challenges of, uh, of, of, of living in a world with its competitiveness, with its glorification of greed, with its glorification of hatred, uh, you know, with its glorification of self and individuality, it will bring you very strongly face to face with the ultimate problems that you have to deal with. And so, you know, you can take it. You can take it as a blessing, if you have to. And I, I think those those of you that have taken vows and taken rows have discovered as well. I think that that. That simple act doesn't really remove you from these problems of the world. It it gives you a tremendous buffer, but you still have to deal with them. There's no escape. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for the two of you for those good questions. I'm going to direct us back to the process of meditation. And we're going to try to get more practice time in this afternoon. Now, a little bit of recapitulation, and then I'm going to introduce you to another meditation technique. So, as I pointed out to you, your mind is many different processes. It's not one thing. And although you call it your mind, that's mainly because you're stuck with it, not because you have control over it. <laughs> uh, when I say you, that's, that's, that, that's assuming that, uh, you know, that, or uh, that's just uh, going along with the sense we have that somehow there is an I that's in control. I mean, ultimately, as you discover, there really isn't an I that's in control. There's just all these different processes taking place. Uh, but uh, Okay, so your mind is a collection of processes. What is it that you really have control over? You've already discovered you can't control the movement of your attention or you have very limited control. over I mean, I, I didn't say that properly. Okay, that's wrong. You can control the movement of your attention, but your the, this intentional self is limited in its control over the movement of your attention. You move your attention onto the sensations of the breath, but then something else causes it to move somewhere else. Right? As a matter of fact, what you do have the only thing that you really have control over is you can generate an intention and where your attention goes is part of that intention and then everything else you have to somehow get all these different mental processes on board to go along with that intention that you have generated you can't do it by force of will so what you're doing is you are directing and sustaining your attention that's really all of this is about you direct your attention to the breath you try to sustain it as long as you can when something else happens and you recognize it you once again you direct the attention to the breath and you try to sustain it as long as you can you just keep repeating this over and over again until after a while your mind becomes trained and your attention is much more easily directed in this process in the beginning you find there's a certain resistance to directing the attention I'm tired of the breath. I don't want to go back. This, this is evidence that there's more than one mental process in there and which one is wearing the hat that says I? Start off, the, 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 I, the hat with the big letter I on it goes on the part of your mind that says we are going to meditate and we're going to put the attention on sensations of breath and it's going to stay there and you do that for a little while and then uh, there's a different mental process that says, this is boring and tiring and uh, uh, uncomfortable. We're going to do something else. So now it's wearing the i-hat. You know, I don't You know, want to do this anymore. <laughs> and, and, and then this other part that no longer has the i-hat says, yeah, but we said that we were going to. <laughs> the bell hasn't rung yet, and uh, uh, everyone will look at us and we'll be embarrassed if we get up and quit right now. <laughs> <laughs> So we've got to recognize that uh, in, in, in terms of this process, it's not about control. It's not about some self that has control of a mind or even a, a mind that's a collection of things. It's, it's about bring, bringing this diverse collection of processes into a kind of uniformity, and the only thing that you really can do volitionally, volitionally is generate intentions. As a matter of fact, this is a very important part of meditation, but going beyond that, for those of you who are familiar with what the Buddha taught, this is essentially what he said, that really all you are is the intentions that you generate. You are the product of your karma. And he said, when I say karma, and and the word karma means action, When when I say karma, I mean intention, volitional intentions. And so when you examine what he taught very clearly, uh, you realize that he is saying, you know, that in, in this being, the selfness of which is an illusion, the, the only fundamental process that can be uh, directed in such a way that it leads to specific results is the generation of volitional intention. So we've kind of arrived at a real bottom line right here at the beginning of the meditation process we've discovered all I can do is to create and continue to recreate and try to maintain an intention and that intention is to direct and sustain the attention on a particular object over and over again until there's mastery of that and then of course we move on there's new intentions that follow that in in the progressive development of the ten stages Keep this in mind. All you can do is to create the intention and then keep rousing the intention again. Uh, You have the intention to attend to the sensations of your breath. And we experience that as the directing of attention because the mind responds to intention by carrying out the action. The same way uh, I decide to reach for that bottle and pick it up, I mean, have you examined something like that? The intention arises to reach for this. And it's amazing. My arm does it. Do I really do that? If you have something near you, just go ahead and reach for it and see. Your participation in the process as the entity that you perceive to be in control actually ended with the release of that intention that caused your brain and your nervous system and your muscles to carry it out you know if you're lucky it happens exactly the way that you intended it to you know and you have your, your 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 arm and hand moves the right way and it grasps the bottle and it picks it up sometimes it doesn't it goes over there and you spilled and made a mess but all of the doing was in the generation of intention. And the same thing is true in meditating. There's the intention to uh, be, to, to pay attention to the breath, and the mind will follow the intention. So your job is just to keep, keep that intention happening, since that's all you can do anyway. You see what I'm saying? It's all you can do anyway. So keep that intention there. So you direct your attention, and you sustain your attention, and then, if for some reason the attention is no longer sustained, when through a process that you're not in control of the awareness arises, then there is the intention that this will that this is a good thing, that this this awareness is a good thing. I want the, I, I, I want this to happen again. I want the, every every time my mind starts to move away from. Meditational object. I want this awareness to come up again. So this is your other intention, your intention to have uh, this kind of awareness, and then that's immediately followed by the intention to uh, have the attention go back to the meditation object, and then the intention to sustain, uh, to be sustained there as long as you can. So that's all it is. That's the whole process here. Your job is to generate the intention, and in this case, your intentions are all about the directing and sustaining of attention. Okay? So now I'm going to introduce you to another practice in support of that walking meditation. Now, normally when we walk, Okay, I want you to pay careful attention to my feet as much as you can. Uh, normally, while we take a step, and before one step is completed, the other foot's already rising up, right? So I'm going to ask you to walk in a way, to, to train yourself to walk in a slightly different way. I need to be able to see my feet here so. Okay. So I want you to train yourself to take one step at a time. You don't move your back foot until your front foot is completely placed. And then you shift the weight onto that foot, and then you take the second step. Then you shift the weight onto that foot, and then you take the next step. And uh, you can do this very slowly, or you can do this more quickly. But I want you to practice taking one step at a time. And now, what I want you to do with your attention ultimately means what i want you to do with your intention what, you, what i want you to do with your attention is when you get ready to begin walking direct your attention to the sole of the foot that you're going to move and become aware of the sensations the sole of that foot and then sustain your attention on that until you have placed that foot shift your weight now direct your attention to the other foot sustain your attention on it until that step is complete. Shift your weight, direct your attention to the other foot, sustain your attention on that until that step is complete. Directing and sustaining your attention one step at a time. Uh, This is a very powerful practice. In some ways it's uh, easier than the sitting practice, but it's complementary to it both need to go together. Now, of course, what the same thing is going to happen when you're walking as happens when you sit. Other things are going to intrude into your awareness and some of these things are going to be fairly strong for one reason or another. So here's the rules. That you want to, first of all, immediately redirect your attention away from any thought that is about the past or the future or some other place that's not right here and now okay and direct your attention away from that kind of thought back to the present moment and in most cases that you're going to be directing that thought probably to the sensations of the sole of the foot that you're in the process of moving. But other things are going to happen. You'll be walking, and there will be a sound, and you'll notice. You've noticed this sitting. There's a sound, and you are palpably aware of your attention goes from here over to that sound, right? And, And then it comes back. But when you're walking, what I want you to do There'll be a sound, and your attention goes to it. Well, if it's if it's trivial, then you just bring it right back. But if it has a strong draw on your attention, then what I want you to do is to deliberately take just stop stop the walking for a moment and deliberately place your attention on that sound. And of course, the sound it may be of the nature that it's it's brief and it passes away. If it's brief. When it's passed away, then go ahead and take a moment just to experience hearing, to be in that place of the sense of hearing. And then direct your attention back to the process of walking. If it's some kind of ongoing sound, as long as you feel it has a hold on your attention, continue to listen to it. Experience it. Examine it it's your object. Put your attention, direct your attention, and sustain your attention fully on that sound. And then when you perceive that its attraction to your mind is fading, then come back to the sensations of the soul of your feet, okay? And what you're doing here, once again it's like we've talked about before, Lance, dealing with pain, it's a kind of finessing. What what normally happens, an unusual sound happens and the mind immediately goes to it. This is a mind that is not fully responding to intention, because your intention is to have your attention remain on the sensations of the soles of your feet, right? So it's a but rather than fighting against that, the same kind of finesse. If my mind's going to go to this sound, then I'm going to make my mind deliberately go to this sound. And it may very well be that if it wasn't your intention, your mind would go to it anyway. that doesn't matter. The imprint that you're making is that whatever you're attending to is what you have intentionally directed your attention to. You see what I'm saying? Any kind of, I use sound as an example. It could be something that you see. And if something in your visual field captures your attention, stop the walking. Put your attention fully on it. Go ahead, investigate it visually, until its attraction, its appeal, is faded, and then go back to the walking. So that as much as possible, you're always consciously directing and sustaining your attention. You see? You see the idea here? You know, this is powerful training of your mind. And as we develop it further, you know, I talking uh, earlier about the four applications of mindfulness, being mindful of the body and the body and the sensations uh, or the feelings as they rise and pass away and mental states and so forth. Very easy to say, not so easy to do, but this practice that we're talking about right now is the key to being able to do that. Because when you're in the world, sensations and feelings and mental states are arising and passing away very quickly. And so, you need this practice of being able to go to whatever is there and arising and experiencing it clearly. You know, right now, if you investigate a sound, you may spend 15 seconds investigating it. But as you acquire more skill, you'll have a tremendously powerful investigation that may occupy only a fraction of a second. But you really have clearly observed what was taking place. In in that moment as brief as it was. But anyway, back to the basic meditation which I want you to practice. So you're walking along slowly, one step at a time, practicing directing and sustaining your attention on the sensations in your feet. You see or hear or feel something, you know, maybe a cool breeze or something like that, or if the sun ever comes out, it might be the sun shining on your skin or something. Anything like that, that you feel has the ability to draw your attention, then you deliberately, consciously direct your attention towards it. Experience it. And in most cases, just take also a moment to experience that whole sensory realm before you come back to the walking. If it's, if it's a sensation on your skin, before you come back to the walking, just settle the awareness fully into the body and just experience what's going on. On in your body, and then go back to the walking. Okay. Any questions about that method? This is, as uh, terms of the speed to do that, which do it in a speed that's comfortable enough for you to be deliberate. Probably something like this, one step at a time. There is a. Uh, uh, there's another slow walking meditation, and there's uh, and also. Uh, a kind of meditation that's uh, where you walk much more quickly and we'll uh, hopefully get around to talking about those during this uh, weekend as well. But right now this is the the walking meditation that complements the sitting practice that we're doing. Developing the skills of directed and sustained attention. And the place that we're looking to come to as soon as possible is that the periods of time when you can successfully sustain your attention on the chosen object will become longer I mean you know comparing any two intervals of continuous attention they're going to vary ones a little longer but on the average overall you'll have the experience of being able to sustain the attention for longer and longer periods of time And the other side of this is that the periods of mind wandering will become shorter until at some point there ceases to be any mind wandering. It's a brief period of forgetting the meditation object and then a return to the meditation object without an intervening period of of mind wandering. And then it's a very small step from that to where you become aware of the tendency of the mind to move away from and lose the meditation object before it happens and at that point then you will have uh, continuous awareness uninterrupted continuity of attention to the meditation object this uh, is basically the second, third and fourth stages in uh, what's outlined here in the second stage you have long, you have relatively short periods of attention to the meditation object. In terms of the breath, uh, these might be, you know, uh, anywhere three to five breaths or 15 to 20 breaths, but rarely longer than that before you forget the meditation object. And often the interruptions are fairly long so that once you've forgotten the meditation object, there may be a minute or two or three uh, uh, spent in uh, mind wandering and absorption and various thoughts that arise before you actually come back to it. In other words, in the second stage, just to simplify it, comparatively, the periods of sustained attention are short, the periods of mind wandering are long. But at some point, and it happens fairly rapidly, you will experience a transition to where it's the opposite case. The periods of sustained attention are long, and the periods of mind-wandering are either short or else there is no mind-wandering at all. It's just the forgetting, and then the remembering and coming back to it. And that's the third stage. Then the fourth stage is where you rarely actually forget the meditation object. That there is, even though it is, often slips into the periphery of your awareness and you're just barely aware, you never really lose it. And that, that is, that, that, that's a wonderful, magical stage. When, that reaches, when you reach that stage, uh, you'll feel very, very good about your practice. Uh, you'll begin to experience a lot of real understanding of the point of the practice. You'll be able to see uh, much, much more clearly than you can right now. What the whole value is of, 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 of creating this anchor for your mind, right? um, And your meditation will be more more satisfaction, satisfying, and more enjoyable. Your know, your your mind will also have significantly calmed to that point. So you will have sometimes to a greater degree and sometimes to a lesser degree uh, a more of a sense of calm and peace. Of peacefulness associated with your meditation. And uh, hopefully it won't take you very long to get to that place. The key thing is no, no negative thoughts, no disappointment, no judgment, no expectation. Just do the simple steps of the practice and let the practice unfold by itself. The only thing that you should feel is good about one thing or another. And let me just remind you of the things that you can feel good about, okay? Uh, that you're sitting here and you set this time aside and you don't have to do anything else or worry about anything else right now. The whole rest of the world is not your concern until the bell rings. I mean, that's something to feel good about. And so whenever you can, remember to feel good about that. Okay? Uh, Whenever you have the experience of being more fully present and more fully conscious, like, like, hey, I, I'm really right here, and I know what I'm doing, I know what my mind is doing, feel good about that, because that's a really wonderful thing. You know, uh, I mean, I, I'm not suggesting those words will go through your mind, but that awareness will be there, is that, hey, you know, I'm, I'm here, and I'm now, and I know what's I'm going on, I know what's going on. Enjoy that. Take pleasure in that, and what the rest of the process is—it's really simple. Like I use examples, like learning to, to play darts. You know, you throw a dart at a target, and you want to land in a little tiny hole, little spot in the middle. And how do you do that? You know, I I, mean, I I assume everybody has learned some skill like that. And the fact is that there is there there is no doing other than the repetition. You know what I mean? you want to learn to throw darts, the only way you do it is you keep you throw and you miss, and you throw and you miss, and you throw and you get a little closer, and then you have it yet, and another miss. But you keep on. And it's just a simple act of repetition, and then after a while you start hitting the target more and more often. And this is exactly the same thing. There's nothing for you to do. You're not in charge anyway. You just keep directing and sustaining the attention as long as you can. Feel good about the awareness that you have and direct and sustain the attention. That's all you have to do. Nothing to worry about, no stress, no responsibility, no way you can, can fail. Uh, you know, you just do the process and eventually you'll hit the target more and more often. It'll get easier and easier. And so let that happen. Okay? Any questions? about the walking meditation or any of this uh, concept. Yes. My last question about meditating, like your technique worked, like... Could you speak up just a little bit, please? Like, your technique worked. Yeah. You became sleepy, yes. Okay, that, that's a problem that, uh, th- once again, uh, Peggy is somebody who has been meditating for a while. And this is, this is a problem that comes up just about the time that you start to enjoy longer periods of uh, sustained attention on the meditation object is you're going to experience dullness and and drowsiness, sleepiness coming up, and uh, so it it is something that first usually makes its appearance in stage three of the practice and then becomes a a very uh, noticeable part in stage four. Once you get that uninterrupted continuity of attention, then you'll spend a lot of time Uh, struggling against dullness uh, uh, dullness to the point of sleepiness so let me just address we'll come back to this but let me just address a little bit some of the ways that you can deal with sleepiness the strong dullness that arises okay Uh, you have your eyes closed and you have your attention focused on uh, the breath, and you're basically ignoring most of the stimuli that normally have the effect of energizing your mind. I mean, we normally we're constantly uh, bombarded by all kinds of sensory stimuli, things we see and hear and feel, and they keep our mind in a state of arousal. You close your mind, you withdraw your attention, you become quiet. When you start to become successful at that, then the energy level of your mind is going to fall. And so you might need some tricks to help bring the energy level back up again. Now, uh, once again, in applying these antidotes to dullness, uh, remember that all you can do is apply the antidote and apply it over and over again. That's all you need to do. And if you keep doing that, at some point, you'll come out of that dullness. And so once again, don't get into a negative space, don't feel bad about it. One thing I'll warn though is that uh, if you haven't already experienced it, the dullness is seductive and pleasant. The pulling yourself out of dullness is unpleasant, it almost hurts, it's almost painful to pull yourself out of that pleasant dullness, that drowsiness. Okay, So you're going to have to deal with that resistance. But otherwise, once again, it's not a question of something that you are to blame for or responsible for making stop. Uh, you don't have control, but you keep applying the antidotes over and over again until the, and, and, until the uh, desired result happens and the energy level of the mind comes back. So <clears throat> of course, I, I'm going to start with sort of the medium strength antidotes. Okay. If you find that you're having a a lot of uh, dullness and sleepiness coming up, then try taking a few really deep breaths. And if you can do it without disturbing other people who are meditating, exhale slowly against the resistance, like something like that. Uh, Otherwise, if you can't do it, just taking a few deep breaths will be somewhat invigorating. Another thing that you can do is to clench up all, tighten up all the muscles in your body and then let them go. And do that several times in a row. And you should feel that that energizes your mind. You'll probably, you won't have any dullness at least for a few minutes. It may come back and you may have to repeat the process. But these are they're sort of the medium strength antidotes. Okay. Another one. Is that is very valuable to learn to do anyway is to meditate with your eyes open. Now, uh, this is not quite as strong as the muscle tensing and relaxation and the deep breathing because if the dullness is particularly strong already, you know, you'll meditate with your eyes open and then you find that you're struggling because you, you know your eyes are going to close anyway. <laughs> uh, so, so then revert to the more vigorous ones. But when the dullness is not quite so strong, often that's enough by itself. Just having your eyes open and the additional uh, stimulus to your brain and mind from that will overcome the dullness. So this, this is a slightly weaker but still effective antidote. Then there's another one that's even less strong than that one, but if the dullness is not very strong, it can be sufficient. And that is to... Let go of your focus on the breathing. Become aware of your whole body. Become aware of all the sounds in the room. Become, let your awareness expand to include your whole environment. Basically what you're doing here is you're, you're just, you've become very closed in and there's very little stimulation and that's why the energy level of your mind is falling. So now you expand your awareness again to the whole body to sounds, to an awareness of, of the space you're in and your environment, and let that reinvigorate your mind for a few minutes. Now remember, you're, you're not just quitting the meditation here. All you're doing is changing the focus. You're still directing and sustaining your attention, you've just changed the focus. But you do this until you have the feeling like you're more alert and you're more energized now. That that. Being aware of all the bodily sensations and sounds and everything else has just allowed you to become less dull. So this is, a very, this is a very mild form of the antidote. The mildest antidote at all to dullness, and this is only when you catch the dullness at its earlier, earliest stage, which is hard to do. I mean, it takes, uh, it takes a little bit of practice. So if you can't do this to start with, don't, don't worry about it. But if you can become aware as soon as the dullness starts to encroach, where you're observing the sensations of the breath and you realize that they're losing clarity, they're losing vividness, they they don't have the same intensity, then the antidote at that point is just simply to focus your attention in more closely on the subtleties of those sensations themselves. Just focus more closely on actual awareness of the sensations of the breath itself and if you catch it at the earliest stage that you then you can reverse the dullness that simply most likely though and unless you've been meditating for a while you're not yet going to have that level of introspective awareness that allows you to catch it that quickly. So you're going to already be at the stage of, you know, there's the slumping and and the distinct feeling of sleepiness. So you're going to want to use the stronger antidote of uh, opening your eyes, uh, clenching and unclenching your muscles, and taking a deep breath. Now, do that as often as necessary. It doesn't matter if you spend if you sit for an hour, it doesn't matter if you spend. Uh, it doesn't matter if you spend the whole hour. Dullness arises. You take a few deep breaths, and you reinvigorate your mind. And then five minutes later, the dullness comes back, and you do it again. And you have to. If you have to do this, say every five or ten minutes. That doesn't matter. You're training your mind to overcome dullness by doing this. But where you need the stronger antidotes is where. Okay, you've pulled yourself out of it, you've taken a few deep breaths, and within a few seconds, you feel it sinking back into it again, like being sucked into quicksand. And and that will happen sometimes. When that's the case, then you need the strongest antidote of all. What you do then is you stand up. You can try meditating for a few minutes standing up. Or you can do walking meditation. And then see if... uh, Uh, See, you know, you'll feel if the dullness has lifted, and then you can go back to sitting. The strongest antidote of all is that if, if even with that, it's a matter of thirty seconds before the dullness comes on again, then you go to the washroom, you splash some cold water in your face, (laughs) you take a few deep breaths, you clench and unclench your muscles, you make yourself wide awake, and then you come back and sit down. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, if you have to do that more than once, that's all right, too. The basic thing that you're doing is you're setting the intention that you are not going to surrender to the dullness. And this is where all the power lies, that you persist in trying to undo the dullness. And this will train your mind. You will come to the place where you're no longer subject to dullness, or only very, very rarely. Maybe if you only had two hours sleep the night before and you're sitting at 2 in the afternoon after a big lunch, you may still have dullness. I, I, I won't guarantee that it's gone absolutely forever for under all circumstances, but one of the things that does happen in the third and the fourth stages you will have to deal with this kind of strong dullness. The fifth stage is overcoming subtle dullness once and for all. And once you've done that, you will rarely, if ever, have to deal with dullness in your meditation practice. It'll be gone for good.
2: Is it better to meditate on an empty stomach or in a full stomach?
0: Well, if, if, you, if you have the choice, it's better to empty an uh, empty stomach or an almost empty stomach. The worst time is shortly after you've had a large meal. A lot of your blood flow goes to your stomach to support digestion and also Uh, There are certain uh, hormones and neurotransmitters that are released in the process of digestion that actually have a soporific effect. They actually make you sleepy. And so you're struggling against the natural workings of your own body if you try to meditate on a full stomach, which doesn't mean that you should necessarily not do that sometimes. It's just that most of the time, and especially if you have the choice, it's better to meditate when, uh, you know, at at least an hour after you've eaten.
2: Okay. If I may also share a technique for Mm -hmm. dullness, uh, especially for um, Peggy's case, I find this helpful. I've been playing with different techniques of of seeing whether or not they could effectively effectively counter the five hindrances, and this is a technique that I find helpful, at least for me, and that is to uh, inhale in a special way as to inflate different parts of uh, the, the uh, lungs. So for example, uh, in one inhalation, you do so, you inhale in such a way as to deliberately inflate the lateral part of your lungs. And in the next inhalation, you try to inflate the rear part. You do the same with regard to the top part, the bottom part, the front part, and you, try, you allow your attention to become fascinated by the difference in the pleasant flavor involved in the different way the chest cavity is massaged. Mm -hmm. So essentially, you see, you experience inhalation as a kind of internal massage, if you will, and it's creating pressures and tension and relaxations of different sorts of flavor. Mm -hmm. And by tending to the difference in the pleasant Flavors, this,
0: this will generally make the mind become fascinated and, and energized. Mm-hmm. That sounds like it would be an effective method. The, the basic principle of what you're doing is you're stimulating the mind and raising the energy level of the mind. And so, uh, what you've described would be an effective way of doing that. And I've described several basic methods. And it's not exhaustive. If you understand the principle, what you're trying to do is raise the energy level of the mind then you may devise your own ways and, and that's fine the only thing that I would say is remember, ideally you want the intervention to be uh, as brief you know, uh, I was going to say as brief as possible let me reword that you want the intervention to be no longer than necessary so that once you've got the mind re-energized again you can go back to doing the, the practice as before and the ultimate success in dealing with dullness, and this is, an, an, is, is a really important point, it's not the short-term conquering the dullness now. It's the long-term establishing the intentional process of the mind that you do not succumb to dullness, you do not entertain dullness, that when dullness arises, there is an immediate intention to counter it, This is the long-term goal. So to a certain degree, it's actually advantageous to spend a whole hour struggling with dullness as compared to immediately intervening and succeeding and overcoming it. (laughs) As, as, As paradoxical as this may seem. But do you understand what I'm saying? That there's a certain amount of time in in that mental state of determination that i am not going to be overcome by the dullness that is going to have the cumulative effect of wiping out the tendency of dullness once and for all okay so your your description is of something that sounds to me like it would be quite effective and i encourage you th- the rest of you if you if you stumble across or if you deliberately devise something that helps you to overcome a meditation problem like dullness, use it. But always keep in mind that it's not the short-term objective of overcoming the immediate problem, it's the long-term objective of completely overcoming the problem once and for all. I mean, after all, when the mind becomes bored with the breath and we have trouble sustaining attention on the breath, we could switch to something more interesting. But you see, that, that won't achieve the result because that thing will eventually become boring too and then you'll have to find something else more interesting and you know so it's not it's not the short term al- al- although we tend to think in terms of you know my mind wandering now i have to settle my mind down and so i don't have mind wandering anymore it's really the long term effect of becoming free from the problem of mind wandering and it's the same thing with dullness. it's the long term effect of becoming permanently free from dullness that is ultimately more important than overcoming the, indul- uh, the dullness in the immediate moment. If it were only a question of overcoming dullness in the immediate moment, I would say, at the first sign of dullness, get up and do 50 jumping jacks, and then sit down and meditate. <laughs> 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 but it's you want to engage with the dullness with the intention of overcoming it that has a long-term effect. Yeah.
1: One thing, I'm not, I, I hear what you say, but the one thing I'm not quite um, get it is that because I notice twice of why uh, a practice for why the dullness will be not, not an issue. Mm-hmm. Okay? It won't experience that. But once a while if experience that dullness, I, my, the my interpretation is that it's a physical, maybe fatigue or anything. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, at that time, just take, a, maybe show uh, uh, a break for nap yeah. or whatever, yeah. and come back to to do the meditate. At that time, it's not a physical thing. Then you can concentrate. But but what? But this compare with the say you say need to fight, not a fight. You know, engage with. Uh, 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 face and, 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 and work with the, the
0: dullness. Mm-hmm. So a little bit, it, you know, yes. can you explain? Uh, uh, okay, uh, and, and that's an important point. I should, I, I, I should make. If the dullness is due to fatigue, then it, that's a different situation. If you didn't have enough sleep, you know, uh, and you're, you're dealing with dullness for that reason, you probably do better to take it nap. Yeah. Or if you're exhausted for some reason, you know, you've been engaged in some intense activity, or you've been ill recently and your your energy level is low or something like that, rest may be more in order. What I'm talking about is the dullness, the the falling energy level of the mind, that is the direct result of, of the calming of the mind and the developing of focused awareness. And what you want to do is to counteract through your engagement the natural tendency of the mind, once it becomes settled and focused, to slip into dullness. You see, the reason that everybody experiences this in the third and fourth stages is it is the natural tendency of the mind, once it has become calm to a certain degree and focused to a certain degree, to slip into dullness. And so what we want to train ourselves is, okay, we've trained ourselves now to achieve the calm and the focus. Now we want to train ourselves to sustain the level of mental alertness, okay? So, And, and, and that is what it's about. It's, it's the dullness that arises as the natural result of your initial success in the meditation that you need to apply your training to. It's not about overcoming the dullness that's due to fatigue or illness or uh, uh, lack of sleep or something like that. And so that is an important distinction to make. And you're engaging with it, once again, uh, let me be careful of my words here. It's not that you're struggling with it to the degree that you feel yourself struggling with the dullness. Try to let go of that perception. You're working with the dhammas. You're training your mind, you know, it's like, ah, ah, ah no, we're not going to go there. You know, as, 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 as much as the mind is inclined to go there, the higher intention that you hold, the higher consciousness is saying, no, we're, we're going to, in the same way as with distraction. Just because an interesting thought comes along. You know, doesn't mean that we're going to go the meditation and we're going to sit here and we're going to have a wonderful daydream. The same thing. Just just because a desirable state of dullness arises, we're not going to succumb to it. We're going to go back to the practice. Okay. So, mm-hmm. but that is that, that. I'm glad you brought that up. It's an important distinction. This is not about overcoming natural physical. Process. It's overcoming a mental process that is actually the result of one aspect of the training and training ourselves away from that problem as well.
1: Yes? Um, I know it says um, mental, a uh, meditation object, as in always one. Uh, but it's possible to split attention into
0: at least two streams. For example, could be processing sound as in listening to someone's conversation. At the same time, you could be focusing on uh, your hands or your feet or Mm -hmm. something else. Is this something that can be practiced? This This uh, is something that can be practiced and uh, uh, is practiced uh, later on. Um, In terms of the uh, power of mindful awareness, we want to expand and increase that and one of the ways that we use that is by uh, uh, trying to achieve the same level of mindful awareness of of a uh, larger object or a larger scope uh, as compared to uh, just a, a tiny focus. Okay, so that is something that we do. Um, tempted to get into a digression here. <laughs> One of the outcomes of the, in in the history of Buddhism, uh, the sutras were taken and they were, an attempt was made to systematize the uh, philosophical points that uh, the Buddha had made in the time of his teaching. And that is embodied in one part of the scriptures that's called the Abhidhamma and for several hundred years, uh, uh, actually for about a thousand years or, or more after the passing of the Buddha, there were many schools of Buddhism that you could basically call Abhidhamist because all of their attention was focused on uh, these philosophical points that had been derived from the Buddhist teachings. And One of the theories that arose out of that is that uh, Experience consists of one discrete moment of consciousness at a time that arises and completely passes away before the next one arises and passes away. Uh, and, and as a result of this theorizing, it was said that it's impossible to be conscious of more than one thing at once. <laughs> okay, but everybody's experience is just the opposite of that, right? Yeah, we're all all the time conscious of many things at once. So the theory says. Theor- theorists replied that, yes, but these moments of consciousness, they're so short that there's thousands and thousands of them happen in, uh, in, in, in a fraction of a second, in the snap of a finger. There's uh, all kinds of different numbers. Some said 64, some said 64,000. Different numbers are offered for how many moments of consciousness. But the idea here, in defense of their theory, was that these moments of consciousness are so brief that when it seems like you're hearing and seeing and feeling all at once, really you're not. It's all one at a time, but you're jumping from one thing to another. There are actually things about that theory that are useful, and they're useful just simply as a theory in understanding uh, the process of meditative training, and I make use of them. But um, in terms of whether this is an ultimately accurate description, number one, uh... Nobody's been able to experience these uh, theoretical, uh, virtually instantaneous dharmas. (laughs) And number two, so much of the actual experience we deal with involves being aware of more than one single thing at a time, that uh, it's good not to become too attached to this, these theoretical ideas, because then they just become sources of confusion. The place that we come to in samatha is a place of a highly developed introspective awareness, where we're watching our mind while our mind is doing whatever it's doing. You know, And you say, well, if we could only be conscious of one thing at a time, how is such a thing possible? Well, we don't need to answer that question. The whole idea of uh, you can only be conscious of one thing at a time, it is, is a theoretical construct that, that really we don't need to be concerned with beyond its practical utility in helping us to understand certain things. Okay. The fact is, and uh, you can illustrate this for yourself, as a matter of fact, one of the things that I was planning to illustrate uh, with you in a guided meditation, and I will, is, as I said, you have a limited capacity for conscious awareness at any particular moment. And, and, and what you define as a moment, I don't care whether you call a moment ten seconds or a second or a thousandth of a second. But the fact is that any in any given interval of time, you have a limited capacity for conscious awareness. You already know this, and I want you to explore this directly in your meditation, and I will guide you in that. But when we talk about cultivating the power of mindful awareness. We're talking about increasing that. We're talking about going from a place where the flashlight is is dim to start with, and when you spread the beam, it gets really dim, to a place where the flashlight is brilliantly bright, and even when you spread the beam to encompass a lot, it's still thoroughly illuminated. And exactly how we do it is by... Taking advantage of what is our common experience—that we are capable of being aware of more things at once, more
1: than one thing at once. So. anyway, yes, you had a. I'm sorry. I have a question. Go back to the darkness. Yes. Uh, is that the problem? We over when when I when I find the when I find out the uh, darkness arise with the. A problem to over energize? Yes, it,
0: as a matter of fact, uh, it is. In the fourth stage of the practice, which is where you, this is mostly what you're dealing with, is um, you, you don't lose the awareness of the meditation object, but you have many other things going on in your mind at the same time, or you're slipping into dullness. This, in the fourth stage, you're sort of, if you're not dealing with one, you're dealing with the other. And as strange as it may seem, sometimes you're dealing with both at once. <laughs> a lot of things going on in your mind and dullness. But anyway, a lot of what you do in the fourth stage, it's a balancing act where if you over-energize your mind, then it becomes agitated and you start to have that monkey mind experience. But then if you calm your mind too much, you start slipping into dullness. And so you, in the fourth stage in particular, you spend a lot of time finding the balance and fine-tuning that. You go a little bit too far one way, and then you calm the mind some more, and you go a little bit too far the other way, and you re-energize the mind. In that stage, what you actually do when you're fine, is you will allow a certain amount of subtle dullness to be present, just just to help you stabilize the attention.
1: Okay. Uh, I understand, but my, my problem is like this. Okay, um, I can find that the donut, at a uh, very early stage, so um, uh, so like, uh, but the problem is like, uh, when I try to concentrate more to mm-hmm. wake up, it it it, it, make, it create a problem like uh, I I drop back to see like a uh, like uh, when I if, when I going going into like a fifth or or sixth stage, yeah, and then I the the I aware that some toners gonna be happen, yeah. and then I. Foxy more, mm-hmm. and then it go out. But I drop back to like a fourth stage or fifth. Stage. Yes, where you start Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that does that, bother me a, a lot because I I cannot go go further. I always stay stuck there.
0: So you feel like you're 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 stuck in that particular stage. Yeah. Problem of yeah. Uh, okay, where where you where you really are. It sounds to me like is probably in the fifth stage, where your practice should be to gradually increase, and, and I mean this very gradually increase the energy level uh, of the mind, uh, without uh, without coming to without without slipping back to the fourth stage, where uh, they, there's so many things going on that very often the meditation object slips into the background. So we describe the fifth stage as overcoming subtle dullness. But another way, uh, and and it is in the sense that there is this tendency as the attention becomes stable to gradually slip into subtle dullness, and we're trying to keep that from happening. But the other thing, the the other way we can look at it too, is to see if we can gradually energize the mind more and more without slipping into uh, uh, agitation, without slipping back into the fourth stage that you're talking about. So. at this point in time there are some things what you're talking about is specifically a fifth stage meditation situation and uh, I'll either talk to you about that personally or maybe uh, later on in, in our group discussion that may be appropriate to deal with that but, but for the benefit of the the rest of you and you're looking at these ten stages what he's dealing with is, is, is something that is very typical of the fifth stage that you know and and very often like we speak as okay i'm i 'm at the fifth stage we 're not really we 're sort of cycling between the fourth, fifth, and sixth stages we 're we're, we're sort of going back and forth these and, and, and gradually moving forward, you know just the same you 'll find yourself in the second, third, and fourth stages moving back and forth, and then the third fourth fifth sixth stages moving back and forth, and so right now. We would say you're at the fifth stage, but what you're actually experiencing is that sometimes you get up to the sixth stage and then you're slipping back yeah, to the fourth yeah. stage, and then you're going back to the And that's completely normal. You're, you're, you know, what's happening is exactly what's supposed to happen that is characteristic of the fifth stage. But if you're feeling stuck there, then uh, uh, hopefully we'll have a chance later to talk about some things you can do about being stuck in the fifth stage. Okay? But what you're experiencing is, is, is absolutely what you should be at oh. this stage of the practice, okay? <laughs> That's a problem only in the sense that you would like to be further along. <laughs> okay. Yes? I have a second stage question. Yes, good. <laughs> so, you know,
2: you're trying to meditate for like 40 minutes. Say. And after 20 minutes, you just don't want to do it anymore. Yes. Great. hmm So I know there's the just do it anyway. Yes. Yeah. But is there anything other than
1: the just do it anyway? Is there any other tricks to help you hang with it?
0: Uh, you, can, uh, you can take a period of time to find and, and experience the most positive aspects of your meditation. But first of all, though, let me just point out that the best thing that you can do is to recognize those thoughts and those feelings for exactly what they are. They are parts of your mind is trying to solve the problem of the current situation, and these are suggestions. So these thoughts, uh, and, and, and the way your mind works, some things come out as thoughts like inner statements or images, you know, that are clear in that way. But a lot of how your mind communicates with itself is through feeling, you know. And, and so that feeling that arises that that I'm tired of doing this is it's just another another version of mental ease saying, "Well, one solution to this problem would be we just quit and do something else." <laughs> and and what you're basically doing is is saying, no, that's that's not the solution. Now, what is good to do when when that uh, we we can call this? Uh, uh, I, I need to talk to you at some point about the hindrances, but one of the hindrances uh, consists in a, a kind of resistance to practice, and another of the hindrance consists in a kind of doubt about. Is what you're doing really worth doing after all? And these are closely related. And so those are the two hindrances that uh, are arising that you're experiencing in in this particular instance. And uh, interestingly enough, the the hindrance of of resistance, uh, the antidote to that is directed attention and the hindrance to doubt is sustained attention. Uh, uh, or the, the, the an- antidote to doubt is sustained attention. So uh, the, the short, simple answer is you just keep doing it. But the other thing that you can do is to take a, a moment to see if you can recover your motivation. That okay, sitting here doesn't feel so bad, it's kind of nice, relax, you know. Uh, uh, how is my mind? Calm. Or try to discover the calmness and the pleasantness. Why is it that? What what are the what are the goals uh, that I have that lead me to meditate? Uh, just see see if you can arouse, in one way or another, uh, your your inner sense of motivation, and, and, and that that will make it much much easier to just do it. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't change the fact that the ultimate solution is to just do it. Uh, Directed and sustained attention is what overcomes resistance and doubt, and that's true. But we need to arouse some of that uh, inner juice of of motivation about, yes, there are good things about this. Yes, there are benefits. Yes, there are things that I wish to achieve, and, you know, yes, it is worth doing. (laughs) So and that's a very good question. Thank you. it is really, you, you described it as a, a stage two uh, uh, problem, but actually it can it can actually arise a, a, at, uh, at many of the different stages. Anytime a person is experiencing sort of a, a stuckness that, well, I've been doing this for quite a long time, the seventh stage is a really good one for that. The seventh stage, yeah, I have this tremendous... Ability to sit here and be single pointed for an hour, but nothing's happening, you know. And then doubt comes in. Well, maybe this really isn't the right practice. You know, maybe I should be doing something else. Or maybe I'm not suited to this. Or maybe the whole thing's a bunch of malarkey that they made up. And there really none of these wonderful things they talk about ever really do happen. And doubt takes all kinds of form. And the stronger doubt is, then there's this restlessness. This, you know, it becomes harder and harder to sit. You know this feeling of restlessness and impatience. So it can, uh, what you've described isn't really just a stage a stage two phenomenon. It happens it happens at different stages as well. So just keep in mind it's just it's just products of your mind. Uh, they see the present situation as a problem and they're trying to come up with solutions. <laughs> so and of course this is one solution. If you got a headache shooting yourself as a solution too, but you know.
1: <laughs> I have experience to share the, this yes. problem. Yes. It's also I have find also if you overpower it can also become a problem. See like if you find when when you when you feel you don't want to do it and then you 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 make a you you make some motivated mm-hmm. and to, to think that. But if you make it too much then you will become Another thought to, to effect the, your meditation
0: it you're saying that if you you get you can start having thoughts yeah, and, and yeah, get caught yeah. up in a cycle of thinking yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah yeah. 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 yeah 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 that's absolutely true, yes so be aware of, of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. see ultimately what you've discovered what you you're discovering what we all discover in the process of meditation is the way our our minds work and we start to see these different dimensions that you approach a particular problem in a particular way and that just causes something else to happen. Yeah. <laughs> right? And you can look at this in two ways. You can say, Boy, this is so frustrating, you know, I try to solve this problem and, and then this other one comes up. Or you can look at it in the way of, oh wow, I've learned something new. You know, first I learned about that and I was dealing with that. And now I have this new discovery and this new understanding and that 's where I want you to come from this is all about discovery meditation is all about discovering the nature of your mind the nature of reality you know to, and, and and it's a journey of learning discovery knowledge realization leading to awakening it's not it's not an arduous painful thing that you put yourself through in order for some some barely recognizable goal that you want to have. It's a process, and every stage of the journey has its own potential for wonder and delight, and that's the most effective place to be in. Not not putting myself through this for sake of what I'm going to (coughs) have some future time, but the wonder, the discovery of the process as it unfolds. All right, so what I want to do now is I want you uh, to give you an hour and a half. I'm going to set a timer here for three half-hour intervals. Um, First, uh, I'll I'll give you a ten-minute break so that you can go to the washroom and things like that. three half-hour intervals, and what I'm going to suggest that you do is that you sit for half an hour, and then you practice the walking meditation for a half an hour, and then you sit again for a third half hour. Okay, And do your best to uh, remember the instructions and follow them. And as I just finished saying, just see this as, a, as an experience of discovery, of uh, self-discovery, and be open to whatever happens. Be, be open to whatever experience you have, and just try to always remember to practice these very simple techniques, okay? So... Uh, Sorry.
2: Yeah. maybe I should say something about the protocol of walking meditation. Oh, so, yes, yes. Right, yes, yes. Uh, you're free to pass the person in front of you if you find your own pace to be quicker than that person, but please all walk. Let, let's make it uh, so that we're all walking the clockwise direction, so that people mo- moving in the opposite direction won't bump into each, uh, <laughs> <laughs> each other. Bit, yeah. right? So you have the option of either walking in indoor, which is downstairs, or outdoor at the area that we mm-hmm. uh, mentioned earlier. The gong will be sh- struck at these two places at the designated time. So if you are outside of this area, then you run the risk of not,
0: not being able to listen to the gong,
2: hear the gong.
0: Okay, thank you. Any, any questions about where to walk or anything like this? So
1: indoor indoors walking downstairs?
0: Yes. And there's, there's a big room downstairs. There's a big room, a huge room downstairs. downstairs for walking. Yeah, There's also right next to it, there is a small room that if you want to sit someplace that's a mm-hmm. little more secluded, of course, every, if everybody goes and sits in there, it won't work. <laughs> 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 but uh, I, I'm expecting that most of you will do your sitting practice in here. But uh, if... If, if somebody finds a, the, the, that they prefer a little more seclusion, there is a second smaller room downstairs where you could sit. Okay. okay can we turn yeah. the lights down a little bit when we we'll do the yeah. setting? Yeah, we uh, Did you talk about eye contact? Uh, oh, yes. When you're doing the walking meditation, uh, of course, try not to uh, have any contact with anybody else, including eye contact. Look to the side or look down rather than looking because to walk you have to have your eyes open and if you look at somebody or you smile at somebody you're you're just crashing right into their <laughs> meditative space you know yeah. so so don't 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 do that try to allow everyone to have as much privacy as is possible given the circumstances that we're sharing a space for walking okay thank you okay well so go ahead and have a, a stretch and then. Uh, uh, and, and then we'll begin sitting, walking, and sitting. And then we'll, uh, at, at, the, uh, at, at the time that the uh, final bell has rung, then uh, you'll have another opportunity to go to the washroom and, and you'll have been sitting and stretch. but then we'll get back together in here and we'll talk about uh, what your experiences were like. Do you okay. want to have a little break first? We're going to have a break first right now. Yes.